Good morning. If I haven't met you, my name is Fritz, and uh, along with Murray, I'm one of the pastors here. Um, Jake, thank you for leading us this morning with half a voice. I know what that's like. I mentioned a couple weeks ago about uh, the way my wife and I view our children leaving the house um, and how she would love them to stay forever at one level, but I'm ready for them to go. Um, But if you've had children that are grown and they do leave the house, you probably have experienced this, uh, this thing where they leave and then they return. And maybe they leave again and they return again. And it can often be confusing, right? I say that because as we read this text this morning, it can be confusing, Jesus is talking about his departing and his return, and his departing and the Holy Spirit coming, and his departing. And so it can be a little confusion, confusing regarding is it his resurrection he's talking about or the sending of the Holy Spirit. So what I'm going to do as we read this, I'm going to try to highlight which ones uh, refer to which, just to help us work through this text. We are starting in John chapter 14, verse 15 this morning. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Another way to say that in another translation would be when you love me, as you love me. Because that can be confusing. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Most people think that means Jesus' resurrection and reappearance to the disciples. Some people think it's the Holy Spirit. Some people say both. Yet, In a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. We think that is clearly referring to his resurrection. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Again, we're thinking that means the Holy Spirit coming. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. 
Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Let me pray. God, we thank you for the promise of the Holy Spirit that after the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead and he appeared to his disciples, and Lord, after 40 days he ascended and he is now at your right hand and reigns and rules and you have sent your Spirit to us until you return And we dwell with you forever. What a story. And at this part in the story, Lord, as we await your resurrection, as we depend on you ascended to the right hand of the Father, we pray that even this morning as your church gathers here and across the world, that you who promised to do greater things than even when you were in the body locally, would do infinitely greater things today. In your name and for your sake, we pray. Amen. I want to start by asking a question like I have the last couple weeks. It's very similar to last week's question, but do you need help? Are you the type of person that when you really need help, and you might even debate that in the moment, that you need help? Maybe you just need help moving something and you are either the type of person that will say, hey, can you help me? Or you just try to muscle through and do it yourself. This is an observation that I have uh, after being a minister for 20-something years is that very often unbelievers are pretty good at asking for help in general. A lot of my non-Christian friends have therapists. They have people helping with their health, their diet, education. They sort of know that they need help. They may even run uh, to, to Alcoholics Anonymous quicker than a Christian, for example. But when it comes to asking help from God, that's usually where an unbeliever draws the line. Or saying that that Jesus is actually God and He is the way and the truth and the life and so forth. But when it comes to believers, often we are pretty good on the front end when we become Christians and we understand our need and our situation. But often as we grow as Christians, we can tend to think that As we grow, that must mean that we grow in some sense stronger and we don't need help. Now, if God is at work in us, that that changes. We do need help and we ask for help. But let me just give you one observation. And I admit that there may be many reasons for this and good reasons for this. 
I have been at this church eight years, and I thought through this, and I don't say this to guilt anyone. The problem may be me, actually, or it may be that you're getting help elsewhere, and that's a beautiful thing. But I can count on one hand in eight years that I've gotten a phone call that says, we need help with our marriage. It's because Murray's getting them all. He's going to get them all now on my sabbatical in the summer. Look, you may be going to counselors and you may be getting it in your small group, and that's glorious. But let, let us just say that sometimes we are not the greatest at asking for help. And essentially what Jesus promises us today is the help that we need from God. See, we do need help to love God and to love each other, to be a witness to the world with that love. But the way that help comes is a little differently. It's that God comes to us and dwells in us and with us and shows and re-shows and re-impresses upon us His love for us and the very peace that we have with God. Just by way of review, where are we in John? We are in the upper room. We are right before the imminent departure of Jesus for the cross. And if you're new to the church and you still don't understand the cross, you have questions, we would love to chat with you about that. But Jesus is going to His death on the cross for sinners. And He's talking about leaving and the disciples are troubled. Last week, Jesus made promises to them and comforted them by saying, I am the secure way to heaven. This is how it works. This is how you get to be with God forever. And I am the truth about God. If you want to understand God, look at me. And if you want to have life, it is... It is united to me being at the right hand of God, bringing about my kingdom in this world through the church. Maybe you're looking for life where you shouldn't be looking for it. Today, He is promising to send help in the form of the Holy Spirit. Now, we just had a Sunday school on the Holy Spirit. Those are all online. You can listen to those. We can't say everything about the Holy Spirit today, so we're going to try to stick to the text And we're going to try to say three things. Number one, who is the Spirit? And the first point is a little teachy. It is a little more Sunday school-like. The second second point is what does the Spirit do? And the third point, as my buddy Richie Sessions always says in every one of his sermons, so what? Youth, you might remember that. So first of all, Who is the Spirit from this text? I want to say, this is a Puritan first point, six things. Okay? But they're quick. They're short. He is a gift from God. Look at verses 15 through 16. Loving me, if you love me, when you love me, as you love me, you will keep my commandments. And here's the good news about that. I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper to be with you forever. 
Remember our context. Jesus has just said to the disciples in the upper room, I'm departing, I know you're troubled, but here's the good news. It's actually better that I go to be with God than if I'm with you in the physical presence. And I'm going to send you help. Ask me for anything you want, anything in the world. We even said last week, you can ask for a new car if you want, but what you really, as you grow as a Christian and you learn your helplessness, what you begin to say is, Lord, have mercy. I need you. Send your Holy Spirit. It's the same thing Jesus says in Luke 11 about prayer. God is a Father who loves you and loves to give good gifts to you. Ask Him for anything. Ask for the Holy Spirit. Because that's what we need the most. We need the Holy Spirit. And He is a gift that God loves to give to His church. Secondly, He is described as a helper. Verse 16. A lot of translations of this word, you've probably heard comforter, counselor, encourager. Luther uh, interpreted it trusted friend. It comes from the word parakletos. I looked it up on Google Translate pronunciation today. It means to call alongside. It is one who is called alongside to help. It means that God is sending himself to come alongside you. Yes, to comfort you, to counsel you, to encourage you, to be a trusted friend, to help in a time of need. Do you see God as a helper? Thirdly, He is a gift from God. He is described as the helper. This is just a small point, but I think it's important. We don't need to overlook it, especially if you are new to the church. He is the Spirit. In other words, He is not material but he matters significantly. Uh, just like if you go to a funeral, and we don't have many open casket funerals anymore, but if you did, you would see a dead body. And you would look at that person, you would say, yeah, that's so-and-so, but it's really not so-and-so. Because something is missing. What is missing? The immaterial part of them. Their spirit. Or their soul, you might say. The Holy Spirit is not material. Fourthly, He is the Spirit of truth. Verse 17, even the Spirit of truth. Now, you could say a lot of things here, but just what the text explains, and I'm going to jump over the, all over the place for just a second. But verse 26, He is the Spirit of truth that points to Jesus. Jesus said that He was the way, the truth, and the life. And in verse 26, notice what it says about the Holy Spirit, the Helper, whom the Father will send in my name. What will He do? What kind of truth will He teach you? He will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that Christ has said. Other people have said this a hundred times, but the Holy Spirit puts a spotlight on Jesus. So any understanding of the Spirit that doesn't ultimately put the spotlight on Jesus uh, is, not, is not super helpful. 
The spirit of truth is Christ-centered and he helps us. This is just a small little thing. Verse 28, hammer out truth. What the church calls historically doctrine. For example, verse 28, there is a confusing verse. If you just took verse 28 where Jesus says, the Father is greater than I, you might say, well, he, Jesus can't be equal with the Father. And one of the things that the Holy Spirit did when he was sent to the church, especially early in the first few centuries, is help the early church and Christians understand truth and doctrine and hammer it out and look at other texts and bring another. What was Jesus really saying there? What did he mean there? Thirdly, under this point, he is a truthful friend. What I mean by that is simply this. If he is a helper if he is a spirit of truth, if he is a trusted friend, what kind of friend do you trust? Do you trust friends that only tell you what you want to hear? A true friend doesn't just tell you what you want to hear. They tell you the truth. They might comfort you. Surely they're going to love on you. Surely they're going to counsel you. But when you need someone to say the hard thing, he will do it. Fifthly, under this, I told you this little teaching, hang with me. Verse 17, he is not for the world, yet he is for the world. This is what I mean by this. Jesus says the world cannot receive him. It neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and in you. The Holy Spirit is uniquely given to Christians. If you do not understand God, if you do not claim to be a Christian and understand the gospel, it is a clear offer to you to ask for the Holy Spirit. Later on in chapter 16, Jesus says that one of the things the Spirit does is the Spirit of truth is He does tell us the truth about things. He looks at us and said, hey, I got some great news for you about Jesus. I'm about to shine the spotlight on Jesus. But in order to do that, you have to see something about yourself. He convicts the world of sin and righteousness. If you're a Christian, what has happened in your life is the Spirit has come, has convicted you not just of sin and your lack of righteousness, but He has convicted you of Jesus' righteousness. That you can come to God dressed and robed, as we said earlier, in the righteousness of Jesus. And what this means is if you're not a Christian, you may not know you're doing it, but you are dressing yourself in some kind of righteousness. Whether you're just trying to be reasonably good, love your neighbor, tolerant. Okay, though. You're trying in some way to replace the work of Jesus. The Spirit is not for the world, and yet you can have the Spirit if you ask for the Spirit. That may sound simple, but it's true. Finally, under this, and this sort of ties in with that last point, look at how he says it again in verse 17. The spirit of truth, this helper, he is for the church in a very unique, specific way. You know him for he dwells with you and he will be 
in you. He says two things about the Spirit dwelling. First of all is that He dwells in you. Ultimately, God's presence and that intimacy that we long for and the intimacy and the tenderness of God that the disciples are experiencing this very intimate time with Jesus in His incarnate body, that very intimacy and that presence that we long for is in us through the Holy Spirit. God does not dwell with an ark anymore. God, I know this is, you're like, of course, Fritz. But God does not dwell in tabernacles and temples anymore. God does not dwell with a certain form of worship. Can I please just say that for the hundredth time? If you go to Africa, they're going to be worshiping a little different than we are. If you stay here in a couple hours, it's going to look a little differently. And I'm telling you, God is at work in that church just as He is in this church. There's all sorts of ministry being done by God all over the world because He dwells in His people. What the early disciples experienced in Acts 2 at Pentecost is what we have every single day. Day, do you believe that God dwells in you? But I think the point of John 14 is a little more corporate because He dwells with you. There is an individual sense where God dwells in every single Christian, but I don't think that's the emphasis of what Jesus... Jesus is talking to 11 disciples here. And He's saying this Spirit, the Holy Spirit will come and He will be in you and with you, plural. The you is plural. This idea of you and a podcast, you and a book off in the middle of nowhere, and you're going to grow as a Christian is not biblical. It's okay to take a book and go study. But I'm telling you, in Reformed circles, this is often what happens. We come to the Reformed faith through this book or through this thing, and if you don't get plugged into real relationships where you wrestle with those things with the Spirit, with the church, you're just going to spin off somewhere else later. I'm just telling you it's going to happen. And God says, oh, let me draw you to myself through many different ways. Let me draw you to my people. Because that's where I dwell. I dwell with the church. And no matter your view of the church, it's always a broken vessel. It is always a clay pot. That's where for some odd reason, Jesus says, I'm going to put my treasure. You can poke holes in every denomination, every local church, Plenty of holes. You know what? God pokes holes in the church all the time. And when He does, the treasure shines forth. God's living arrangements is the body of Christ. God's geography is the body of Christ. If you want the topography of God, look at the church. He dwells in you and He dwells with you. Let me sum this first point up. The Spirit of truth is given by God to the church as a gift to help the church. Two weeks ago, Robert Cunningham said this, 
you must let Jesus serve you. You must let Jesus wash you. Last week we said that you must let Jesus comfort you. This week we are saying you must let the Holy Spirit help you. I was reading again one of my favorite theologians, Sally Lloyd-Jones, and the thoughts to make your heart sing. And she's writing this about this children, I don't know if you can see it, this beautiful tapestry in France that was made in like, I don't know when it was made, but it's depicting a scene in, in uh, how do you say this, 1066, and it's the bio tapestry, tapestry, I butcher words all the time, forgive me. But it shows a knight on a horse. And she's talking about this verse in John 14, 16 about the Father giving us another comforter, giving us this helper. And in this tapestry, it's a knight on a horse, and the caption reads, Bishop Odo comforts his troops. And he says, she says this, Is the bishop giving them nice fluffy quilts that comfort them? No. Look, he's prodding them from behind with a stick. That's not comfy at all. But Odo is spurring them on, encouraging them, urging them to keep going and not give up because comfort in the Bible does not mean to make comfy. That's what a friend that's not trustworthy does. It means to send help. Do you see what she's saying? What Jesus is saying? God sends the Spirit because we need help. Would you admit that you need help? These disciples already saw one of them leave. Catastrophic failure coming. And the tendency is to look and go, the world's falling apart. Look at what's happening in Rome. Look at what is happening in Jerusalem. We can't trust God. We can't trust anybody. Jesus is gone. Let's just disperse. And here comes the Holy Spirit saying, no, stay in there. Keep going. I've been sent to keep you. Do you know why we go to unhealthy places looking for comfort? Because that's what we need. We need comfort, but not that kind of comfort. That's who the Spirit is, secondly, what does the Spirit do? In other words, how does the Spirit help? Three things here, and they're very intertwined. The first is this. He makes God known. He makes God known to the Christian and to the world. Look at verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. In other words, Jesus is saying that when he departs and sends his spirit, that one of the ways the spirit helps us is to continue to manifest Jesus to us. Again, that spotlight, not just putting the spotlight on Jesus, but manifesting Jesus to us. Would you admit that you have a continual need to see Jesus? But also, 
he makes God known to the world. Verses 22 and 23. There's this question by Judas, the other Judas, and he says to him, Lord, how is it that you're going to manifest yourself to us and not to the world? He's either like evangelistic, well, what about the world? Aren't you going to show them? Or he's got this Messiah power thing going where it's like, you got to go show yourself to the world. And it's almost in verse 23 like Jesus is ignoring his question. But as you listen and pay attention to it more and more, you realize he is actually answering his question. And this is the answer. How am I going to manifest myself to the world through you? Through the church. And specifically, the church loving me, keeping, keeping on, us making our home with you. And he's basically saying this. When you, the church, are keep, keeping God's commandments, you're loving God and loving one another. It's the same thing he says in John chapter 17 when he prays. He says this. I don't ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I'm going to manifest myself to you, the church, in such a way that you manifest that love to the world. It's evangelistic. The Spirit has come to help us by manifesting Jesus to us in the world. Secondly, He manifests to us the love of God. In other words, He impresses upon us the love of God. If you remember back in chapter 11, the Lazarus story, at the very beginning, we talked about this cycle of glory or sort of circle of glory where Jesus says, I am here to glorify the Father, and the, the God, the Father, glorifies me. And it's sort of this cycle, it's this Trinitarian thing, where God is, Jesus is glorifying the Father, the Father is glorifying Jesus. Here, it's the same sort of thing that happens. There is this, for lack of better words, this cycle of love, this reciprocal love that is going on. We don't have time to go into it, but there are several little chunks of this text that basically say the same thing and you hear it over and over loving God being loved by God loving Jesus being loved by Jesus keeping his commands loving each other as you look into it what you find is this none of these are teaching this is how you're justified even the way it's translated can be misleading when you obey me it's, that's not what he's saying at all what he's saying this is as you understand and grow in God's love for you, that's going to have a reciprocal nature. It's the same thing we're going to see next week. That when you abide in the love of Jesus, the love of Jesus is going to come out of you. That we love not just because God first loved us, because God is always loving us. And the Spirit is sent to impress upon our hearts the love of God. Ask any counselor 
what a human's greatest problem is. And I'm going to guess that one of the things they might say is that they believe in their heart of hearts that no one loves them. That they're not loved. Or someone told them for years how unlovely they were. And we all have that in us from Genesis 3. And what it does is we look for love in all the wrong places. If you don't believe me, this was a shocker to me. I came into our denomination just on fire. And I thought every minister in our denomination had it figured out until I started to see some of them with great theology, which we are all about. And the next thing you know, you'd get a phone call that they had committed adultery. Had an intern her first week working for me. Got a phone call that her dad, who was a PCA pastor, had fallen into the arms of another woman. But what the point is here, what we've got to see is the reason that begins to happen. Yes, sin, behavioral stuff, all that stuff. But the reason, as my old friend used to say about David and Bathsheba, before David fell into the arms of Bathsheba, what happened? He fell out of the arms of God. And what the Spirit does is He says, I want to take all that great doctrine, all that great biblical theology, I want to show you why it's there. It is because of the love of God. And I want you to stay in that relationship where I am going to, through the means of grace and other ways, I'm going to manifest to you the love of God for you. And that we can even ask God and His church to help us in that. Finally, we see that He manifests and He manifests the love of God. But in a very like legal way here, I want to talk about this for a second. He is also our advocate. But where is He our advocate? Scripture is clear that the Holy Spirit takes our prayers and the jumbled things that we sometimes say and don't even know what we're saying. And here's the beautiful thing. He takes those to God and God hears them perfectly. So don't worry about how you pray and what you sound like and you get mixed up sometimes. Just pray. But that's not what he's talking about here. Because in, in, again, if you back up to this word helper, a lot of people translate it advocate. And they struggle with it because it's the same idea of Jesus when he advocates for us, 1 John says, or John says in 1 John, that he advocates before the Father. But that's not where he's advocating. Where is the Holy Spirit advocating? This is what blew me away this week. He says that he's going to give us another advocate who will be with us for how long? Forever. As long as you need an advocate, you will have the Spirit advocating for you. Well, where is he advocating? Hold that for just a second. What is he advocating? Verses 30 through 31. What does Jesus kind of end this section by talking about? About his going to the cross. 
And when he goes to the cross, this is what happens. He says this, I'm not going to talk to you much longer because the ruler of this world is coming and he has no claim on me. But I'm going to do as the Father has commanded me. In other words, what he's saying is this. Jesus has not sinned. He is perfect. And therefore, the devil, as an accuser, has no claim on Jesus. He cannot go to God and say, "Look, it's just like he did with his servant Job, remember? He can't say about Jesus he has any sin or any reason for judgment. He has no claim on him. And yet, because Jesus goes to the cross, what he's saying is, I'm obeying the Father to the end for you. Jesus is taking our place, taking our sin on him, so that the devil cannot look at us and say, I've got a claim on them. But you know what he does? That's what he does all the time, doesn't he? He tries to accuse us before God. And even more subjectively, He accuses you in the courtroom of your own heart. Who is your worst critic? You. And you know what this Spirit does? The Holy Spirit is another advocate given to us to continue to remind us of what Jesus said and did and to impress that on us. Flip with me very quickly to Romans chapter 8. Lord willing, Murray and I are going to jump into the book of Romans next fall. And this is one of my most exciting parts. Romans chapter 8 verse 14. This is in the context of Paul talking about how sin is put to death and we live unto God. Okay? And this is what he says. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Do not be afraid. Do not be troubled. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now listen to what he says in verse 16 that the Spirit does on a regular basis in you, the church. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that you are what? Not what you think you are. An orphan. Forgotten. Unloved. No, 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 no. You're the opposite. He bears witness that we are the children of God. That we have the same status as Jesus, His Son. That's why the devil has no claim. He can accuse all day. And the Spirit's at work in the church going, those are God's children. Those are heirs of the kingdom. But you say, wait for it. Oh no, I have sinned too much. I am like the disciples. I'm about to blow it. And my sin is going to put Him on the cross. You know what the Spirit says to you? Oh no, you Mr. Blow It and Miss Blow It. I put Him on the cross. God the Father put Him on the cross 
for your blowing it. Come, my children. That's why in verse 27, Jesus says, I bequeath peace to you. I asked my Jewish friends about this and I looked it up. I was ready for some deep dive into some heavy Hebrew and theology and all the books and my friends said this, it's just a standard greeting. May it be well with you. And I thought about that and I thought, you know what I need every day? I need somebody to remind me of the objective peace I have with God in the inner courtroom of my heart to say, it is well with you and God. So you can't love other people in a way that is attractive and evangelistic if you don't have that objective peace with God. And the Spirit is sent to remind you of that. <clears throat> I read an article recently, and it was about an and these apps that they are creating now and it's sort of a <clears throat> for or against and all these arguments and discussion about artificial intelligence that is used uh, to counsel you. I know that sounds a little crazy. What about a real person? But they're creating some of these things where you don't have good counseling or good therapy and the Zoom thing, whatever. But what it does is they take thousands and thousands of dialogue and, and documents between therapists and clients. And so you might say to the app, I'm having a terrible day. And the app says, what's going on? And you say, <clears throat> uh, this happened or this, and it, and it will respond to you, again, artificial intelligence, but the whole point is to regain your sanity and to recenter you on the truth. You can argue against or for that. That's not what I'm trying to say. I quoted Sally Lloyd-Jones. Now I'm going to quote Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones famously said that Christians need to spend less time listening to themselves and talking more to themselves. And I would just add that that's what the Holy Spirit does. So what? Two quick things. Number one, you may not have known this, but you're at a service that is actually an officer installation service too. We have one person standing for the office of elder today that you have voted as a church to receive. And the best thing that you can expect and hope for and pray for for your elders is that as they shepherd you, that God through His Spirit would continue to shepherd their own hearts, that they are not loved based on what they do, that their status is not in their outward identity, their jobs, their careers, how good of a, even, even as Jake said earlier, a godly man. Well, what is a godly man? Maybe a godly man is someone that says, I'm the first person in this church to say, help me, God. Maybe that's a godly man. Pray for Matt. Pray for your leaders. Secondly and finally, 
I would just encourage you that if you struggle having peace in the church, peace with brothers, peace with your leaders, peace with those you serve, Jesus says, before you come back next Sunday, throw that offering as far away as you can throw it and go to that person. Go to that person and trust that the Holy Spirit will help both of you and bring about an expression of love and peace that only God can truly bring, that the world cannot give. And that will speak to the world. Let me pray. Lord, I know this was a little more teachy this morning, and I always sense that, well, maybe it doesn't get to our hearts, but, but Lord, renew our minds. Teach us and renew our hearts. Impress upon us, Lord, not just love in some general sense uh, that just says whatever we want to hear, but love that demonstrated itself by coming into this world and giving himself, putting his power to the side and sacrificing himself so that we can be heirs of the king. We can be your children. And we confess, Lord, that very often our hearts can, Lord, hear other voices and listen to other voices, even the courtroom of our own hearts. We need your spirit, Lord. Impress upon this body of believers the very work that you have done on their behalf. Impress upon them your very love that drives that for your people. And make us a church, not that is perfect, not that doesn't have holes in it, Lord, but, but Lord, loves each other, lives at peace as far as it is possible with us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.